Hey friends. So we recorded this podcast episode with Oak Thorne last year actually, well before COVID broke out, and are really excited to be able to share it with you now. Just want you to understand that uh, this is pre-COVID, in case you're wondering about the context. Enjoy. Welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And today we are in the beautiful outdoor setting of Thorn Nature Experience with its founder, Dr. Oakley Oak Thorn II. Hi, Oak. Hi, hi. So great to have this opportunity to talk with you yeah. today. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Oakley Thorn Oak II was born in 1928 in New York City and grew up on the south shore of Long Island as a nature boy. Those are his quotes. Absolutely. <laughs> on 60 acres of woods, meadows, streams, and a lake. He attended Millbrook School in Millbrook, New York, then Yale University, earning a Bachelor of Science in Biology in 1951 and a Master of Science in Conservation in 1953. And he received his PhD in Zoology, Animal Behavior from the University of Colorado in 1958. He was the first representative of the Nature Conservancy in Colorado in 1954 and helped found their Colorado chapter. He founded Thorne Ecological Institute in 1954, which is now doing business as the Thorne Nature Experience, which today continues to connect kids to nature through hands-on environmental education programs. In 1990, Oak helped establish the Environmental Studies Program at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, which is now called Naropa University, where he taught field ecology and deep ecology. Oak is also a jazz pianist, I've heard him play, it's fabulous, and does composing and vocal arranging, and for 28 years sang second tenor with a Boulder-Denver men's a cappella singing group, the New Wizard Oil Combination, or The Wizards. He is a member of the external board of the Yale Institute for Biospheric Studies, and each summer, Oak teaches bird banding to students ages 12 to 15, something we're going to be able to see in a few minutes, at the Thorns summer camp program, and uh, Oak, it's it's just it's remarkable uh, reflecting back on all that you've been able to accomplish during your career, and such a joy that we have this opportunity to visit with you today. So thanks for for right. taking the time to visit with us. <laughs> uh, I love the way you say career because uh, uh, I learned from a very wise woman years ago, Anna Miller Tiedemann. Uh, when I attended the World Wilderness Congress, she had an organization called the uh, uh, Life Career Foundation, and she stressed the fact that your life is your career. Hmm. Uh, when you run into young people that just graduated from college and, oh, we don't know what our career is going to be, I always say to them, relax, your life is your career. You're Hello. always in your career. I'm in my career now talking to you. Yeah. You're in your career talking to me. You, so you never leave it. That's so true. <laughs> it's a great it's a great concept. That's so true. Well, Oak, I imagine as you're interacting with all of these students, these young people over the years, you've had the opportunity to impart all kinds of wisdom that you've picked up all, along the way. And, and I imagine it's got to be an incredibly vitalizing and enriching thing for you to have that interaction with all these young folks on a regular basis. Can you tell us a bit what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. It's what we call mentoring. And uh, it, it's a great pleasure to, to be able to mentor young people. And 
theoretically pass on wisdom. Sometimes you learn from them that they have better wisdom than you have. <laughs> but uh, usually through life experience you do gather a lot of wisdom and I love to share what I think is, is my wisdom with them and also encourage them. Uh, they, they, are, they love to have somebody that will listen to them and, and encourage them in whatever they're interested in. And after all, the young people coming along are our future leaders, and that's important to remember. I've been struck. I've had the opportunity to get you to know you over the last several years in the Boulder community. And I've been struck, Oak, how you have such an emphasis on leadership and on the cultivation of leadership skills and, and the ethos of leadership. And it's, I think your, your take is not what I would call the, the mainstream, flashy, you know, power brokering, uh, power suit wearing form of leadership. You're doing something different that seems, from my perspective, to be more enduring and actually more, more grounded and in many ways more solid. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. Um, yeah, leadership very often requires listening and uh, really understanding the other person's point of view. And when you've got, what, how many dozen kids can you have here at one time? It, I imagine the listening can be uh, <laughs> quite a right. quite a school, <laughs> skill to develop. Yeah, we have an entire second grade class. Sometimes we'll have 60 kids out here at once. But they love coming out and they love the freedom of being out in nature. And uh, connecting kids to nature is so important. Uh, there's so much research that shows that if kids are allowed to just play, they call it wild play, just when they're really little, just be able to go out and discover what's out there in nature. As a little kid, I remember on rainy days, I'd go out and make dams and see how the water would flow. I learned a lot about the physics of water just by playing in it when I was a little kid. And of course, I was lucky to grow up on 60 acres with woods, uh, meadows, streams and even a lake and I was just nature boy. I was out there all the time discovering critters, finding turtles, finding a bird's nest, learning what kind of bird it was. So that c contact with nature is very important. They call it biophilia, which is the concept that you're not really normal psychologically unless you have contact with nature. And I certainly believe in that. I think that that contact with nature is so important and there's so many kids that are growing up with <clears throat> computer games and iPods and so forth and, and all this uh, techno stuff and they're divorced from nature so what we do here at Thorn Nature Experience is to get the kids connected back to nature and that's very important. Yeah it seems uh okay I, I think that you and I probably share something in common in our childhood experiences and that when I was a kid, my early years I spent in the forests of the Pacific Northwest and often was just out there for hours with my dog, right. uh, whom I call my first best friend. Right. And uh, you know, we're, that's, that's what I did for, for hours and hours and days and days and I think it developed a very different view of the world than many of my friends and peers have, uh, perhaps growing up in uh, urban environments where they're not having that direct nature experience and it seems to me that 
one of the most important things we're, we can be doing in our society is exactly what you've been doing for decades, which is helping to reestablish that connection with nature and to heal that, that great divorce that has emerged. Exactly. Yeah, that's so important. Rachel Carson recognized that. She, she said if she had an influence with the, the good fairy that brought children up was that every child should have an, an adult that could take them by the hand and, and show them the wonders of nature. The uh, sense of wonder is what she called it. It was so important. And that's what you, when you get out into nature and discover all the variety and, uh, of animals and plants and just all the th exciting things that are going on in nature, you really realize how, uh, how true it was that, that uh, Miss Carson was right on when she said it was important for kids to have that sense of wonder and you certainly develop it when you're out in nature. Yeah, I think uh, a conversation you and I had probably about five years ago, Oak, on the topic of wonder actually uh, was part of the, the influence that led me to have a full chapter called Wonder in the book Why on Earth. And, and that there, especially these days as many of us in our professional lives are so consumed by, by technology, by data, by numbers, uh, doing our things in this inside of the boxes of office buildings and so forth, we end up potentially missing out on an incredible wealth of knowledge and even of wisdom that comes only from nature. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that if, if we had more of us cultivating that sense of wonder in our lives, Oak, we'd probably be better off in terms of where our society is currently. Yeah. I think also, I think a, a great teacher will develop a sense of wonder. Uh, education is so important. Uh, I think it was H.G. Wells that said civilization was a, a race between catastrophe and education. <laughs> Let's hope that education wins. But I, my whole life, if I boiled it down to one word, uh, it would be education. I just have always felt that that's so important. And uh, uh, I think that worldwide, the more we can educate people, the more chance we have of the world surviving. When we're talking about education, are there certain subjects or certain approaches to education, Oak, that you think are most needed and most effective? Well, certainly using nature, getting out into nature is a very important part of it, education. Uh, I sometimes use the phrase serendipity of, of nature. I love the word serendipity. It was, it was uh, coined by Horace Walpole, I believe, in about 1854 or something like that, and it was based on the, uh, the, the two or th three brothers, the brothers of Serendip, who went out into the world, and and just by being in the right place at the right time, good things happened to them. So Walpole. Walpole uh, coined the word serendipity, which was based on the Brothers of Serendip. Uh, but I, I can think many times when I'm out in nature and uh, something happens, like I'm watching some dragonflies buzzing by right now. Yeah. But I remember one time with, in the rope of <coughs> field ecology class, we, we went out uh, on the... Uh, <coughs> we went out on the... Uh, 
a bobolink trail and along South Boulder Creek. And as we started along the trail, there was a raptor sitting in, the in a tree in the distance. And we literally walked right under that, right up under that tree, uh, and the raptor didn't fly away. It turned out to be a prairie falcon. And it kind of looked down at us, but it was more concentrating on something else. And while we were standing there, it, it took off and dove into the meadow and caught a, a vole, which is you know, like a, a big mouse, uh, right there in front of us. And I jokingly turned to the class and said, boy, I had to pay him a lot to put on that show for us. <laughs> but uh, what the point was that we could have gone out there for a hundred days in a row and not seen that particular scene of a raptor catching a vole. Uh, that's serendipity. We were just there at the right place at the right time. Nature is full of serendipities. I get it. So I guess there's a, there's a, an opportunity for serendipity in nature we probably don't find in the classroom, in the city, quite the same way. That's true. That's very true. Although, again, it's up to the teacher. The teacher can make uh, things, even in a, in a classroom in the city, they can create a sense of wonder. Yeah. It just, just depends. But the more that kids are allowed to explore nature, and particularly before they even go to school, that sense of wild play is so important. We're starting a nature preschool at, at Thorn Nature this year. Uh, hmm. We had to jump through all kinds of hoops with the state to get permission to, to do this, but we, we just feel it's so important and, and there's so, so much research, people like David Sobel and so forth who have written about the importance of wild play for little kids so that yeah. they get connected at an early age with nature. I love it. Well, and there's also a fair bit of research indicating that many of the psychological and emotional uh, issues that more and more of us modern humans are dealing with are actually connected to this thing called nature deficit disorder. Right. And I know that's a big part of your work is, is helping to heal and remedy that specific uh, phenomenon as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Richard Louvre wrote the wonderful book Last Child in the Woods and the subtitle was Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And uh, he, he really stressed how important it was to get kids outdoors. Leave no child inside is what his, <laughs> his slogan was. Oh, I love that. And it is really important. So obviously here in the Boulder area, and, and by the way, we, we are sitting in the sun. It's quite warm in Oak. I, I hope you're still doing okay. Uh, I'm surviving. It, it's, uh, it's toasty <laughs> out here, but we, we wanted to share with our audience this beautiful view right behind us. And we've got in the, in the near distance, um, can't quite tell, but there's a, a wonderful large water feature pond kind of sombrero marsh. Sombrero marsh here, yeah. and then behind are the uh, beginning of the Rocky Mountains, uh, heading right up to the Continental Divide uh, of the of the main Rocky chain there. And uh, Oak, maybe you can tell us a bit about what's going on here on this on this landscape and why we're sitting outside. <laughs> why we're sitting outside. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is an amazing partnership between. The city of Boulder open space, the Boulder Valley School District, and Thorn Nature Experience. Uh, for years, the open space department tried to buy Sombrero Marsh, and the school district uh, refused to sell it unless there was environmental education. 
And we got wind of this and we said, hey guys, Thorne could do environmental, environmental education. So uh, we had many meetings, uh, bureaucrats love to meet, and uh, we hammered out the partnership and the, the, uh, the marsh and all that rest of that land is, was sold to the city by the school district, except for one acre that this uh, fenced in one acre, we're attached to the school district, this is school district property. And they, they uh, purposely kept this one acre on which to build the uh, Sombrero Marsh uh, Environmental Education Building, which is really our home, at, uh, the Thorn home. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful partnership. We have entire second grade classes that come out for the day and other, other groups of kids. And, and uh, in the summer, we have our own field trips that come out here and go to other open spaces and uh, again to, to get kids out of doors and connected to nature. So how many how many kids are coming through the the program each year? Boy, it, it, it's, uh, several thousand uh, when you mm. when you think of our in school after school field trip summer camp programs which we have here in Boulder we have them in Littleton we have them in Longmont and Louisville and Lafayette and it's just, uh, it's, it's been uh, an amazing growth and we're very proud to have actually been able to accomplish what we've been able to accomplish. It's absolutely beautiful. So I'm wondering with some of our audience who are in other places, other communities who maybe don't have these kinds of resources yet, Oak, what, what would you suggest to folks uh, in terms of steps that they can be taking uh, to get those kids more and more connected to nature? Well, I'm sure that they can find a park. New York City is a good example with Central Park that Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. designed. Uh, what a wonderful resource that is. So you, you can find nature. You can find an old uh, deserted lot and have a, a community garden, which is another way of connecting kids to the earth and to nature, just, just by learning how to have a garden. Uh, and learning where food comes from. So, uh, I encourage all communities to think in that broad sense of what can we do to connect kids to nature? And I'm sure there are good ways. Yeah, and if, if you're interested, you can check out uh, Thorn Nature Experience at thornnature.org. And uh, what I love here is that, Oak, not only are we able to see all kinds of birds outside and you've actually been identifying a bunch as we were setting up earlier right. inside you've got a beautiful uh, collection of of taxidermy birds raptors owls all sorts of even fox some other animals right. um, to help the kids identify and see and get a sense for how big some of the creatures are and right it's right. just it's a beautiful way to to, to learn it, it certainly is yeah and while we've been sitting here, I'm sure I just heard a goldfinch go over. You can hear that tweet, 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 tweet. And you hear, you've heard black, red-winged blackbirds chirping as they've flown over. So uh, the sounds of nature are, are so important for kids to learn. You can, you can learn uh, a lot about birds by listening to the different uh, sounds. John Young has, has written a whole book on what the robin knows. Just. Uh, whether they are sounding off in a disturbed way or in a what we might interpret as a 
relaxed, happy way. There's so many aspects of birdsong besides just protecting their own territory. They, they will express their emotions or, or their worries. If there's a predator nearby, they'll, there'll be an alarm sound that they'll make. Just get used to listening to nature. One of the things I love to do with kids is to uh, uh, ask them to, to uh, close their eyes and not and just listen with their ears because with your eyes closed your ears become a lot more sensitive and you start picking up noises that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise those are red-winged blackbirds flying over now you can hear them you know Oak, the uh, the sound of the robin always reminds me of my grandfather and uh, he it seems learned some of their language and, and could uh, tell when they're communicating about different things and and the one thing that has stuck with me the most is when they're singing the uh, It's About to Rain song. And they seem to get so excited when they're anticipating imminent rain. And boy, it just it reminds me of my grandpa hanging out in his yard in his garden listening to those birds. He would do that for hours. Right. That's great. <laughs> yeah, bird wisdom as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me think, you know, he he led a very long, full, uh, vital life. And uh, who knows, maybe listening to birds is part of the secret. Ah, yes. Is that right? I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I know that um, one of the things you're doing and you're able to demonstrate to the kids and to others is uh, tagging birds. No, bird banding. Bird banding. 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 You tag cattle and you band birds. Okay, okay. Tag cattle, <laughs> band birds. Okay, I think I got it. So your bird banding, and we're actually going to have an opportunity to see you d demonstrate this in a few minutes. Right. But uh, tell us, what what are you doing? And, and it sounds like there's a whole network of people that are engaged in this uh, in this effort. Yeah, it's a major program under the Department of Interior, so it's a federal program. The Bird Banding Laboratory is located in Laurel, Maryland on the Patuxent Research Refuge and has been for many, many years. Uh, I banded my first bird when I was 13 years old in 1942 under my biology, under my biology teacher at Millbrook School in Millbrook, New York. And when I was a senior, about ready to go to Yale, uh, he said, Oak, you've been banding for five years under me. You deserve your own permit. So he wrote to the bird banding laboratory and I got my own master permit in 1947. That was 72 years ago. So, uh, I, and I've been banding birds ever since. And what I love doing is teaching a bird banding class. Every June I teach four weeks of bird banding to uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds. I have to be 12 to be in the class to have, have the coordination to, to uh, handle birds and band. So uh, it's a wonderful way of connecting kids to nature uh, and they, they love it and they come back and take the course two or three times and then they may end up by the time they're 16 or 17 being one of our TAs, our teaching assistants. and. Uh, I have an example of one young man, uh, Cody Limber, who, who took my bird banding class for several years and then became a TA. And he went to college at, at, CU, uh, at UC Berkeley, the University, University of California at Berkeley. 
and he just graduated from there and he's been accepted as a graduate student in ornithology, that's the study of birds, at Yale. Oh, that's under Rick Prum, who's an acquaintance of mine. So I'm very proud to have mentored him along the way and others. So bird banding is a wonderful way to connect kids, uh, really connect them to nature. Handling wild birds and putting the band on just really, really connects them. Well, I, I know we're going to, in a couple minutes, we're going to see you demonstrate this oak. And I just, I love how delicately you hold the bird in your hands. And uh, it yeah. seems that it, it also conveys directly how precious uh, these beautiful creatures are. Yeah, they certainly are. Uh, why don't we do that now? Great. Okay. A red-winged blackbird here that needs a band. And, uh, Today is the 3rd of August, I believe. She's so calm. Yeah. You've got the right touch, Oak. <laughs> I'm the bird whisperer. Yeah. Oh, 82. Uh, all the birds, oh, bird bands in, in North America have a, a three-digit, or I'm sorry, a, a four-digit prefix huh. and a five-digit suffix. And you figure with four and five numbers in combination like that, you have billions of combinations. Yes. Because just with five digits alone, if you start with zero, 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 and end up with nine, 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 you've got 100,000 combinations. Then you just change the prefix by one digit and make another 100,000. So every bird in North America has its own license plate. Isn't that something? And... Uh, yeah, it's the uh, master database. We send all our information to a master database in Laurel, Maryland. is under It's under the Department of Interior. It used to be under uh, Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Interior. Now it's under the Biological Division of the U.S. Geological Survey, which is still Department of Interior. Huh. So I'm getting a size... Two band out here. No, I'm not. It's not a size two band. Forgot. It's a female, so. Does she need a smaller size? She needs a smaller size because the females are smaller than the than the males. Yeah, she takes a one A band. Go. Up a page, one page back. Eight three nineteen. Five, four, three. I put the last three digits of the band number. The band number is actually twenty seven thirty one is the prefix, and then the five digit sub. Suffix is zero three five zero three, <laughs> but I so I just write five zero three the last three digits. Mm-hmm. And uh, and how often do you submit the records to the the central database? Uh, we usually do it about once a year, sometimes twice a year, but basically by the end of January, after the 
the banding year is over. You see, I just opened the band yeah. with these special pliers. And then it goes into this notch here. And I band her on the right foot like that. Squeeze it closed. Now she's got her and license plate. she's got plate. her license plate for life. Yeah. And what's the the main reason that we are tracking the birds this way? Well, since we are tracking individuals, wherever she shows up, we know it's this bird. Uh-huh. Uh, so we learn about migration. We learn about longevity, how long she lives, and also whether they come back here. A lot of the birds keep coming back here. In other words, they, they stay fairly local. Other birds just move on. Yeah. Uh, we band a lot of cliff swallows every year. And they nest under road culverts, and they they have to be where they're flying insects because they uh, uh, because they eat flying insects. They have to be where there's perpetual summer. Uh huh. So they fly all the way to southern Brazil and Argentina in our wow. in our winter. Incredible. Most of the swallows go south because they're eating flying insects. Have to be where there's warmer climate and flying insects to eat. Now she's ready to go. She's so calm. Yeah. She's got her bling now. There she goes. Oop. Off she goes. <laughs> there she goes. <laughs> so your kit's ready to go basically wherever you are, huh? Well, I, in the summer, yes. In the winter, we have a I have a desk in there with this all set up because uh, we're banding just here. Uh -huh. But in the summer, uh, uh, with the bird banding class that I teach, we're at all different places around Boulder County, and then I go up to Abar A Ranch in Wyoming to band, so I have to really make my car the banding station, huh. have all the equipment right in the car. Beautiful. So... The mobile banding station is mobile great. Banding station. <laughs> well, my car's like a mobile bookstore sometimes. It's it's interesting what we're able to do with these vehicles. Great, Oak. Well, thanks. So uh, this was a live demo of banding a bird right. at at the uh, center here. So it's uh, great to be able to see that directly, Oak. And I love being able to teach young kids how to band birds. I banded my first bird when I was 13 under my biology teacher, Frank Trevor, at Millbrook School in Millbrook, New York. And uh, that was in 1942. <clears throat> in 1947, when I was a senior, he helped me get my own permit. He said, Oak, you've been banding it for five years, and you could deserve your own permit. So I got my own permit, a master permit, as they call it. Um, in 1947, that was 72 years ago. Been banding birds ever since. Wow. Who? But I love doing it, teaching 12, 13, 14-year-olds how to band birds. Yeah, they, absolutely. They get so good at it, and it connects them to nature. That's the main thing. It's a real connection to nature. Yeah. Yeah, who issues that permit, just out of curiosity? It comes from the bird banding uh, office which is in Laurel, Maryland. Okay. And uh, that's under Department of Interior. It's a federal permit. 
So I have to have a federal permit and I have to have a state permit. I have a Colorado and a Wyoming uh, permit. I even have a Boulder County and Boulder City open space permits too. Yeah. Just to make sure. Yeah. For banding on open space. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. It was great to see that. It's a it's a wonderful. Uh, in a way, it's a wonderful hobby because I never get tired of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that demonstration, Oak. That was just really fun to see. It makes me think some of these birds are wearing bling. <laughs> What's bling? <laughs> What's bling? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you have to explain it. Is, bling is the uh, like metallic bracelets, jewelry. Oh, okay. even sometimes when folks will put all these sparkling, sticky things onto their the backs of their phones and so on, they'll call that bling. Okay, it's a way I guess that we're decorating ourselves <laughs> <laughs> and our phones. So the bird has one single aluminum band, and that's their bling. That's their bling, okay. yeah. Well, let me take this opportunity to remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And today we are visiting with Dr. Oakley Thorne II, known as Oak. And uh, we are at the Thorne Nature Experience. You can check that out at thornnature.org. And I want to take the opportunity to be sure to thank our sponsors who are making this podcast possible. They include the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, Earth Coast Productions, Equal Exchange, the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, the Lidge Family Foundation, Madeira Outdoor, Patagonia, Purium, and Wele Waters. So a huge thanks to all the support those organizations are giving us and want to give a big shout out to the growing number of people who have joined our monthly giving program you are providing the foundation for all of our community mobilization work throughout the why on earth community network thank you so much for that if you haven't yet joined the monthly giving program and you would like to you can go to whyonearth.org support and when you sign up as a monthly giver I will send you an email with a special code to download uh, free copies of all our ebook and audiobook resources. You can use them yourselves, you can share them with friends um, as a way to say thanks for your support. So uh, thanks to everybody for, for making this possible and, uh, and Oak, just again, so, such a joy to be sitting here in this beautiful piece of uh, natural setting in right smack in the middle of a relatively developed urban corridor right and it seems that uh, you've created a bit of a sanctuary here probably for all kinds of people and uh, other species and other critters other critters <laughs> yeah right so uh, we've got a plane flying overhead this is the newest species of airborne critter I call it a gas hawk gas hawk <laughs> Not to be confused with the goshawk. Right. That's hilarious. Flying into Jeffco to Rocky Mountain Airport. Yeah, that's also one of the scenes in this uh, story I'm working on, flying in and out of there, kind of a funny coincidence. <laughs> we've been talking about that. Um, well, you know, Oak, we've been, we've been talking a lot about what you're doing here at Thorn Nature Experience, what you're doing with the, the education, the, the bird banding, not tagging. 
And I'm, I'm just curious, for our audience, we've got folks in communities all over the country, internationally, doing all sorts of different work. And I'm wondering if, from your perspective, having witnessed many decades of our modern culture's uh, evolution, if you have specific advice and, and wisdom that you might share with us that, that we can use in all this work that we're doing and uh, carry with us as, as we go forward on our journeys. Well, absolutely. I think, first of all, you've got to be willing to take risks in your life. I had a very wise person that uh, used to run in countergroups, uh, Bill Larson. And his truth was that you learn only and always by the willingness to, to, take, a, to take a risk. Uh, if, you, if you do take a risk and it doesn't work out, it's not failure, it's learning. Yeah, Gene Case wrote a, a book on fear, fearlessness, and really what, what that's all about is not being afraid to take a, a, a risk, because uh, that's when you, when you push the boundaries forward. Uh, I just think of many times in my life where I took risks, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but if you look at, at it as a learning experience rather than failure, we, if you work, if you take a risk and something doesn't work out, learn from it. And so the next time you take a particular risk, you have more wisdom on how to handle a particular situation. So anyway, I, I think it's very important to take a risk. And it's also important to, to be optimistic. I really stress that when I mentor young people, the importance of staying optimistic, because if you become a pessimist, you give up. If you always stay an optimist, you can make a difference. And one person can make a lot of difference. I know I've made a difference in my life, and, and it's a good feeling to know that you've made a difference. So taking risks and being optimistic are what I would suggest as two very important uh, tools for going forward in life. I absolutely love that, Oak. I really love that advice. It's fabulous. and. Uh... And I'm wondering also, as somebody who is so connected to nature yourself, to think about many of our audience members who might be living and working most of the time in a very urban setting. Is there, is there anything you would suggest to, to those friends of ours in terms of getting this deeper uh, relationship and experience that you're, you're so familiar with? Sure. Get, get out into nature. Get out to parks and open space and uh, there, there are areas nearby that where you can take a bus or a train or drive out in your car if you have one. Um, maybe, maybe it'll be a self-driving car in the near future. Yeah. And uh, just get out there and discover the. It might be just down the block. You might find an old vacant lot that has, that's overgrown and has nature to study right there. Uh, it's important for schools, for example, instead of the asphalt playground, to also have a nature area where kids can go and discover a dragonfly or a bird or, or a, a toad, uh, whatever. Just, uh, and then, of course, wildflowers. Uh, that's where a garden is really wonderful for connecting kids to nature, just a neighborhood abandoned lot can be a, suddenly become a 
neighborhood garden where a lot of people get together and cooperate to have a community garden. So there are lots, lots of ways to get out there. Uh, as Richard Liu says, leave no child inside. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. For good for kids of all ages. Of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so wonderful, Oak. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Well, it's uh, been an honor to do it. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks so much. <laughs> the Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH. All one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.